It is done. It is in the bag. The Canadian Mining Symposium has completed, and it kind of finished with a bang. Robert Friedland. Robert Friedland, who had to come in late because of airport issues in France. What a speech. I mean, everybody. I talked to David Garofalo, Don Lindsay. There were... A ton of very interesting things said. So hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. Welcome back. And yeah, it was a great conference over in London. And thank you, everybody who attended. It was great to meet a lot of people who listen to the podcast. People recognize me from my voice, hilariously. That's the nature of audio. They're like, I recognize that person only when I spoke. And so an interesting and very fun event over there. I have to say, Robert Friedland was probably the most provocative, although I asked Don Lindsay about some coal issues, and I was actually quite pleased with how it all turned out in the sense that my provocative questions on the environment, something I've mentioned on this show for what feels like a year or two at least, this idea that we're going to dig up all the metal in the Earth's crust in order to produce millions of cars a year and that this is somehow going to save the earth, you know, Robert Friedland poured a whole bunch of cold water on that whole idea. I felt somewhat vindicated, I had to say, when I heard Robert Friedland speak, because it's not something basically you hear very often, which is this idea of the green strategy. You know, how good of a strategy is the green transition? This is what I'm getting at. And I asked Don Lindsay, and I asked David Garofalo, It's kind of a burning question for me, and what was great was when Robert Friedland took the stage, he didn't need any prompting at all. He just went into it, and we're going to take a closer look at what he said there. This week, we're going to have Myra Lugo, the events producer, just talking about the conference, if you weren't able to make it there, and even if you were, to really get the event producer's view of what happened, what transpired in London. And it was a heck of a lot of fun. I have to say, London is an expensive city, and I knew that before. But, you know, going to the Pret, their version of McDonald's, but nicer, you know, coffee spot where you can get kind of nice food. That Pret, I mean, the pound is still like a dollar sixty-six Canadian. So it was not cheap being over in London. And I also have to say, I mean, just as a side note from just more of a cultural big picture perspective, everything broke down. On the way there, British Airways, I felt like there was just every opportunity for something to go wrong did. And, you know, we've all had travel days like that. But what was strange about it was on the way out, it was exactly the same thing. Perhaps it was a mistake going to London Stansted Airport. Going over to Rome, I'm in Rome right now, by the way, saying hi to my relatives here. From Trastevere, for those that know their Rome. And on the way out, it was the same thing. I went to Stansted, you know, everything, it was overcrowded. And then you get on the shuttle that you have to take in order to get to your gate. And then the shuttle service was broken and, you know, people missing flights, you know. And then we get on the plane and then two hours on the plane because the engine light was going on and they didn't know why, and then they finally got it figured out in the paperwork. All to say, I kind of felt like, and maybe it's unfair, but I kind of felt like, you know, is this like a metaphor for the West in general? 
Is it all just starting to fall apart? And who knows? I mean, just entertaining thoughts for us. I don't want to be too serious on that one. But it did make me wonder, because, you know, like, is everything just starting to fall apart a little bit? Perhaps just unlucky. So all to say, a very beautiful venue, just finally on the Canadian Mining Symposium. It was a beautiful venue in East London there. And East London is hopping. You know, I remember when I first went to London in 2012, I stayed in the city and it felt like a place that went to sleep after five o'clock and even during the day was basically business people from what I recall. Now it felt like a hustling and bustling place for young people to hang out, live their lives, have a pint after work. It was hustling and bustling. So that was kind of interesting too. So for all of the discussion of things kind of being expensive and breaking down, it was also hopping. So that was fascinating. So we have a wonderful show here, a lot of very interesting news items. I want to dig a little deeper on what Robert Friedland was saying in our news segment. Also, we have a ton of stories from around the world. Global mining news indeed. The northern miner here from Mali to Egypt to Argentina to China to Russia to the U.S. and Canada and Chile. You know, the mining beat is truly a global news beat. So with that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. Wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to Argentina Lithium and Energy President and CEO Nicholas Kakos for this week's CEO Spotlight. Joining us today, I'm very pleased to welcome back Nick Kakos, President and CEO of Argentina Lithium and Energy, to this week's CEO Spotlight. Nick, it's great to see you. Adrian, it's a pleasure to see you again. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm always thrilled to have you on because I always love talking about Greek vacations, and I know you're an expert <laughs> in these matters, but you have bigger news, uh, actually pretty huge news with your company. I guess before, let me just whet the appetite of the listeners that there is big news coming, but just before we get into it, can you just give us a quick primer on Argentina Lithium and Energy for those that maybe aren't familiar? I'd be happy to. I mean, Argentina Lithium and Energy is what its name says. It's a exploration company for uh, lithium exploration in Argentina. And we've acquired four projects, all of them situated in uh, northwestern Argentina within a region that's known as the Lithium Triangle. And the Lithium Triangle is an area that has part of Argentina and northeastern Chile and a little bit of Bolivia. And this part of the world is well known to host lithium reserves. In fact, almost half of the world's lithium comes from this place. And what makes it really unique is that the lithium here all occurs in brines, in these salt lakes. And the significance of that is that the extraction costs of lithium potentially amongst the lowest in the world. So this is some one of the best places in the world to be focused for finding lithium, especially in Argentina, a country that is vastly underinvested in the mining industry, that hosts huge potential to make additional new discoveries. So that's where we're focused. We're extremely well positioned there with our four projects, two of our lead projects there, both of them situated in Salt Lakes, not just with discoveries, but adjacent to where some of the world's largest mining companies are currently working and you know, building some enormous lithium reserves. 
Okay, excellent. And I mean, Argentina feels very up and coming right now. Like its moment in the spotlight seems to be coming. I mean, they just entered bricks here and it just seems like a lot of wins in their sales right now. So speaking of wins in the sales, you just had a uh, pretty massive news in your uh, latest news release here. So tell us what is new at Argentina Lithium and Energy? Well, the latest news, of course, is also one of some of the most exciting news for us. We've been able to attract Stellantis, world's third largest car company, you know, owner of brands such as Chrysler, Fiat, Jeep, Lancia, Alfa Romeo, Opel, and so forth. They have uh, invested U.S. $19 million equivalent into our company to allow us to continue to advance and explore our exploration projects. And in return, we've given them 19.9% uh, of our company plus an offtake. They will be able to buy from us uh, up to 15,000 tons per year of lithium carbonate uh, for the next seven years for, for when we go into production. Amazing. I mean, it's kind of like the the ultimate, I guess, social proof if you're a lithium company, if a major car operation like Stellantis invests in you or a corporation. Uh, so you must have been thrilled. How long did this take? And I mean, was it a surprise? Tell us a little bit about the story. Well, you know, these deals don't happen overnight. It's We've been working on it uh, for a period of just over a year right now. Their approach to us, of course, was on the base of our reputation. You know, our company is managed by Grosso Group. We have a, a stellar and well-known reputation in Argentina. We've been active there for the last 30 years. In fact, we're known to be one of the pioneers in that country. Our founder and chairman of Grosso Group is inducted into Argentina's uh, Mining Hall of Fame, Mr. Joe Grosso. So that was the first step that they used and they approached us. And then afterwards, they looked at our projects. We gave them a presentation. They did site visits. They did extensive due diligence on our projects. They could see the potential, and this investment really is really a validation of uh, the work that we have been doing in Argentina. I'm very proud of that. Okay, excellent. Well, then let's talk a little bit about the work that you guys are doing. So tell us a little bit more about the projects. Have you been drilling? Uh, what do you think is there? Uh, why don't you update us on actually the projects themselves? Well, yes, uh, we have been drilling. We have four projects, like I said at the open. Two projects are what we consider to be our lead projects. They're the Rincon project and the Antifia project. Now on the Rincon project, um, we've got just under 4,000 hectares of property and we are completely adjacent to Rio Tinto. Rio Tinto is one of the world's largest mining companies and they bought their position into that Salt Lake just last year and they paid just over $825 million. So an enormous price. And we've been there before, so they have a huge resource at Rio Tinto, and they're moving now towards production. With us, we started about a year ago. We started drilling on these Rincon project, and we've announced the first nine holes. And, you know, lo and behold, it looks like uh, all the holes we encountered lithium at grades and intercepts very similar to what Rio Tinto has. So work is underway right now. We're continuing to drill, and we're hoping in the I guess in the first quarter of uh, this coming year to announce our initial maiden resource calculation for that area. And then on the Antifia project, our second primary tier project, again, we have a very large position here, almost three times as big as what we have at Rincon. Our neighbor there, Albermal, is the world's second largest lithium producer. They have a, what they declared to be the largest lithium deposit in Argentina. And we have the northern part of that Salar. We're waiting on permits to come in. We expect those permits imminently. 
and we're going to begin uh, on a drill program there. Right now, we've been working with drilling one drill rig at a time, but with the enormous sum of funds that we have received uh, from Stellantis, we're looking now to uh, accelerate our exploration plans, perhaps double or even triple the number of drill rigs on each project to uh, accelerate getting them to a pre-feasibility study. That's the, the engineering study that determines at the end of which you can make a production decision. I guess one of the big advantages of getting financing of sorts like this is you don't need to issue shares and dilute the company. Is that accurate? That is correct. The funding here represents uh, three years worth of funding that we would have to raise in the market in order for, for us to uh, carry out all this exploration work. Now we have these funds all up front and uh, we don't need to worry about going, you know, going into the market. Our focus now is solely on advancing our projects and getting them, like I said, to a pre-feasibility study and hopefully getting them into production as quickly as possible. Excellent. And just on, say, the water uh, issue and even just the environment in general, how are things there? I mean, sometimes you hear stuff about these Salars in Bolivia and, you know, maybe there are environmental issues. How does that all work out for you, say, the water environmental issues with the projects? Well, these are attributes that we took into consideration at the time when we acquired these projects. When we went out looking for, to, for projects, we wanted them to be in proximity of good infrastructure for rail, water, and roads. There was definitely uh, fresh water that we can use in the areas uh, where we're located. We have an extensive community relations program that's underway, always maintaining good relationships with the local communities, ensuring that we're employing and paying fair wages there. And beyond that, we've also made a commitment to Stellantis to be as uh, environmentally and uh, water-friendly, economical, and reduce our carbon footprint to an absolute minimum. Now, the kinds of technologies that are used to produce lithium, we're going from these old style of where you had these large evaporation ponds that had a big footprint on the environment and required extensive use of fresh water, which is a very rare resource in that part of the world. Now we're going to direct lithium extraction technologies, and these technologies have the ability to recycle the water, use much, much smaller amounts, and are much, much, much more environmentally friendly. So we're in a sweet spot here. And as, as this transition continues and improves, I think this is something that we're going to, again, we're going to be very proud to be able to hold our flag up and say, you know what, we're being very environmentally conscious in this area. And that's the way to do it because lithium, of course, then gets used to make batteries to for storage of electricity that comes from sources that are also carbon-free. So it's important, I think, to be clean from the beginning all the way to the end, not just uh, the second part of this leg. A very important point that sometimes gets missed. So I'm glad you mentioned that. So as a final question here, as we're wrapping up, Nick, what would you like investors to know about Argentina Lithium and Energy? We have an incredible opportunity here. We've got four projects uh, that have the ability to above average potential to produce and make lithium discoveries. And this thesis now has been validated by a major international company like Stellantis. Um, we're super well funded over the next uh, few years here to accelerate. I think as we continue to put the results out, we're going to continue to build and add uh, organic value to our shares and for our shareholders. I think that we are definitely a company to watch here going forward. Nick Kakos, president and CEO of Argentina Lithium and Energy. 
thank you for once again joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. My pleasure. And thank you once again to Nicholas Kakos, President and CEO of Argentina Lithium and Energy, for sponsoring this week's episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Turning to the website, Colin McClelland has a story on northernminer.com where he covers the Friedland talk at the Canadian Mining Symposium. Robert Friedland, billionaire founder and executive co-chair of Ivanhoe Mines, criticized lithium mining at a London conference, ridiculed the West Green energy transition, and urged prayer to end the Israel-Hamas war. It was a bit of a dark talk. Researchers at Ivanhoe startup Pure Lithium in Boston are going from lithium brine to lithium metal in a step that could radically transform the electric vehicle battery market at around $50 billion a year, Friedland told the Northern Miners Canadian Mining Symposium on Friday. Quote, we're going to kill the lithium hydroxide and carbonate business, end quote. The current generation of batteries is going to be toast. It's good for another three or four years. So... Interesting take. I mean, he does say that lithium metal is going to be used, but he's showing skepticism, interestingly, towards hydroxide and carbonate business. Friedland, who made his fortune from the Voises Bay nickel project in Newfoundland in the 1990s, says pure lithium boasts Donald Sadaway, emeritus professor at MIT, and Stanley Whittingham, the 2019 Nobel laureate for chemistry, who's known as the father of the lithium-ion battery. They're cooperating on a new type of battery made from low-grade brine that is inexpensive to manufacture and can handle 500 cycles of charging without losing capacity. Quote, Once you have lithium metal on one side of the battery, you don't need nickel, cobalt, or graphite. All you guys are dead. Nickel, cobalt, graphite out the window. You can use iron phosphate, which is as common as chips, and that's what you want, a battery made out of common material. He mentioned how windmills kill eagles, the electrical demands of Google searches, and a $20 trillion price tag to upgrade the grid. The world must have copper, but does it really need gold? He said the Israeli-Hamas conflict could easily escalate. Quote, this is the most dangerous moment we've seen in our lifetime, said Friedland. Quote, the situation that we see in the Middle East today is definitely enough to make you want to go home and pray. End quote. Another of his targets was the West's focus on new energy. Ludicrous, he said, when the world's most populous countries, India and China, declared they won't reach net zero carbon emissions until 2060 or 2070, and that today people still need fossil fuels for food, shelter, and even the plastic and electric cars. Plus, there won't be enough nickel to supply all the batteries needed, even as cars like Teslas are being built, an electrical grid that depends on coal, he said. And this is something that he mentioned as well, which I feel again, doesn't get the proper attention, which is the amount of energy it takes to excavate these green metals as well. Like not only are we taking what's, you know, becoming a, you know, scarcer and scarcer resource, these metals, and there's also all the energy that that takes. We're using energy in order to extract these, you know, elements. Quote, we can't use expensive and rare materials like nickel just because there isn't enough of it. The metal doesn't exist, not in a way that's green or sustainable. It's like trying to get the contents of the Hoover Dam through a garden hose. And this was something else he mentioned. He said there's just not enough nickel for these batteries. There just isn't, according to him. So that was also interesting. Then he continues on the U.S., where he sees two tribes. One wants green metals to ease global warming. The other, with an eye on wars in Ukraine and Israel, wants metals to replenish armories of copper shells and make tanks electrics so that they're less visible to heat-seeking missiles. Quote, can you imagine how much nickel we need for those batteries? 
This huge clash is coming between the Army, Navy, and Air Force wanting nickel, copper, cobalt, platinum, vanadium, rhodium, scandium, you name it, and the greening of the world economy. We're heading for a train wreck here, and the miners have this unbelievable burden that the whole thing depends on the miners. You know, finally here, just some highlights here for you. He also mentioned how the mining industry needs to really get out front and fight back, was his view, which I thought was interesting from a just PR of the industry, which is, of course, often vilified. Quote, we need to communicate the centrality and importance of mining to anything humanity wants to achieve on the good side. We need to bring women into that enterprise to understand it and lead it in a way that we have a chance to get to the mass media and humanize it as an activity. So interesting speech, one of many at the Canadian Mining Symposium. Continuing on, China rare earths exports drop 18% as domestic demand grows. This is Reuters via mining.com. And it says China's rare earth exports in September fell 17.6% from the prior month. Customs data showed on Friday as suppliers sold more domestically to meet robust demand. September shipments of 4,000 metric tons by the world's largest rare earth exporter were also down 9% from the same month a year earlier, the data showed. Rare earths are used in a range of products, including lasers, military equipment, electric vehicles, wind turbines, and consumer electronics. And we have a quote from Yang Jiawen, an analyst at Shanghai Metals Markets, quote, the month-on-month falling trend in September is not surprising. Domestic demand improved last month thanks to a wave of restocking, said Yang, adding that was driven by buying ahead of the week-long holiday in October, as well as concerns over reduced supply from Myanmar. So it sounds like, according to this analyst, this is not anything to get too excited about. But nevertheless, Chinese rare earth exports drop 18% in September. Continuing on, Stellantis Rio Tinto raised bets on Argentina copper mining. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. Automaker Stellantis NV and miner Rio Tinto Group are upping their investments in a giant copper deposit in Argentina as the race for metals used in electric vehicles heats up. Stellantis, the maker of Peugeot cars and Jeep sports utility vehicles, is investing 120 million US dollars to raise its stake in closely held McEwen Copper to 19.4%, the latter said in a statement Wednesday. Rio Tinto venture Newton will spend $10 million to boost its holding in the firm run by mining entrepreneur Rob McEwen to 14.5%. The investments, which value McEwen Copper at around $800 million, will go towards advancing the company's Los Azulis project in San Juan province after more welcoming policies rekindled interest in Argentina's vast deposits despite the nation's economic woes in capital and currency controls. And for Stellantis, it's a sign of how keen car companies are to lock in future supplies of the materials needed to move away from fossil fuels. Still, Goldman Sachs analysts warned earlier this year that moves by automakers into the mining space may end badly, saying they'd be better off sticking to their core competencies and reducing their exposure to commodity price swings through hedging. Very interesting. Continuing on, Egyptian tycoon I stake in Barrick's Ricodique project. This is Cecilia Jamazmi at Mining.com, and Mark Brisso has been making the point for a while now that, that miners need to go to farther and more remote locations to find the metal the world needs, and that includes the Rico Dick project in Pakistan. Egyptian billionaire Naguib Sawiris, the northern African country's second wealthiest person, is said to be seeking a stake in the $7 billion Rico Dick copper gold project 
jointly owned by Barrick Gold and Pakistan. So Weiris, a major investor in gold producers such as Endeavor Mining through his La Mancha holdings, told Bloomberg News the potential investment would allow him to expand his business in Pakistan. Rico Deek in the Balochistan region that borders Afghanistan and Iran is considered one of the world's largest undeveloped copper and gold assets. And then finally, we have a quote from Sawiris who said, quote, I know the country. I have friends here. We want to be on the Pakistani side because I have been here for 25 years, end quote. Sawiris said, adding that there were few other options to invest in. So very interesting. And again, this is global mining news as we move around the world here. Mali to meet or exceed forecast for industrial gold output. This is Reuters via mining.com. Industrial gold production in Mali, one of Africa's top producers of the precious metal, is expected to reach or even exceed its 67 tons forecast for 2023, according to a mines ministry official. Gold production from mines mainly owned by Barrick Gold, B2 Gold, Resolute Mining, Allied Gold, and Endeavor Mining stood at 45 tons at the end of August, surpassing the initial forecast of 43 tons. Mamadou Sidibe, head of the Mines Ministry Statistics Department, told Reuters. He now expects annual production to reach its forecast of 67 tons or grow further to 68. And we have a quote, if this trend continues, we believe that the 2023 forecast will be reached or even exceeded. Sidibe said, adding that strong production was usually expected during the fourth quarter of the year. Mali's gold production in 2022 totaled 66 tons, so they're growing output in Mali, which is interesting. Going over to Russia, Russian gold miner Uzhurel Zoloto plans Moscow IPO this year, according to sources. This is Reuters via mining.com. Russia gold mining group UGC, otherwise known as Yusu Hural Zoloto, is preparing for an initial public offering before the end of this year, three financial market sources told Reuters, joining a handful of companies eyeing small market debuts. UGC, which has assets in the Ural region and further east in Siberia, is the sixth largest gold producer in Russia, according to estimates in its annual report. It produced 14 tons of gold in 2022 and made revenues of 29 billion rubles in the first half of this year. The company says it aims to become Russia's third largest gold producer, mining at least 25 tons annually by 2026. Continuing on, U.S. steps up efforts to access Africa's critical minerals. U.S. is stepping up efforts to boost ties with African nations rich in critical minerals to help secure supply, according to a government official. Workshops recently held in the Zambian capital, Lusaka and Kinshasa, in neighboring Democratic Republic of Congo brought in U.S. experts with the ultimate goal of setting up local battery manufacturing operations. Kimberly Harrington, Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Bureau of Energy Resources, said at a conference in Cape Town on Thursday. Critical minerals are incredibly important for the technologies that are going to drive the global clean energy transition. She said late Wednesday, quote, My conversations here with the private sector and with partners in a variety of governments have really advanced those discussions. The U.S. International Development Finance Corporation financing was granted to Twig Exploration and Mining LDA, which has a project in northeastern Mozambique to mine and process the material that's used in electric vehicle batteries and nuclear reactors. The loan is aimed at increasing production and growing the global supply chain for graphite, the Mineral Security Partnership said in a statement October 10th. The MSP is a State Department initiative that aims to help funnel foreign investment and Western expertise into the mining industry of developing nations that help supply key raw materials such as lithium, 
manganese, and cobalt. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken signed a Memorandum of Understanding with Congo and Zambia in December to explore ways to support their plan to develop an electric vehicle value chain together. The two Central African nations are major producers of copper and cobalt, key metals and electric vehicles, and batteries. It's like all of human civilization is being geared towards who will make the cars and the batteries of the future. Continuing on, Canada to give Umicore up to $1 billion for new battery components plant. This is Reuters via mining.com. Canada and the province of Ontario will give up $1 billion to a unit of Belgium's Umicore to help it build a plant that will produce components for electric vehicle batteries, Ottawa said on Monday. The facility in the Ontario town of Loyalist Township will manufacture cathode-active materials and precursor cathode-active materials, Federal Innovation Minister François-Philippe Champagne said in a statement. The plant, the first of its kind in North America, will initially employ 600 people and have a battery materials production capacity of 35 gigawatt hours annually. The Umicore plant is due to be built in stages and could be worth $2.7 billion when fully completed. The full project has the potential to produce enough battery materials to support the production of over 800,000 EVs per year, Champagne said. Speaking of air travel, Brink sues Air Canada after $17 million heist of gold and cash. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. An unsolved $17 million heist of Swiss gold and cash near Canada's busiest airport has led Brinks to sue Air Canada for allegedly letting a thief slip away with the loot. Miami-based Brinks accused the airline of, quote, negligence and carelessness, end quote, in a lawsuit after a heist at a Toronto cargo facility netted thieves about 400 kilograms of gold and $1.9 million in banknotes. The carrier failed to ensure the shipment marked, quote, valuable cargo had adequate security and protection, Brinks alleges in the statement of claim, which was filed at the Federal Court of Canada on October 6. Air Canada declined to comment. And finally here, the shipment of gold bars and bills was hauled from Pearson International Airport to a warehouse at around 5.50 p.m. Toronto time on April 17th. About 40 minutes later, someone showed up with fraudulent documents to pick them up. Quote, no security protocols or features were in place to monitor, restrict, or otherwise regulate the unidentified individual's access to the facilities, end quote, Brinks alleges in the statement of claim. Well, I think many Canadian travelers will relate to Brinks there. So those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, let's just take a quick look at the 10-year U.S. Treasury bond for context. What is the price of money? And the U.S. 10-year Treasury bond is yielding 4.746%. Let's call it 4.75, and that is up 0.05% from last week. The U.K. 10-year gilt is at 4.47%. That is 0.05% lower than last week, and the Italian 10-year bond is at 4.81%, that is 0.04% lower. So European bonds lower, while U.S. bonds slightly higher. And turning to precious metals, gold is at $1,932 even per ounce, and that is $55 higher than last week, so big comeback for gold. Silver's at $22.75 per ounce. That is that is 96 cents higher 
than last week. Platinum is at $891.97 per ounce. That is $25 higher than last week. And palladium is at $1,149.36 per ounce. That is $11 higher than last week. Turning to industrial metals, copper is at $3.57 per pound. That is $0.09 lower than last week. Iron ore is at $119.25 per metric ton. That is a dollar higher than last week. Aluminum is three cents lower at 99 cents per pound. Lead is five cents lower at 94 cents per pound. Nickel is two cents lower at $8.29 per pound. Tin is 20 cents higher at $11.38 per pound. Cobalt is unchanged at $15.16 per pound. Lithium continues lower at $22.77 per pound. That is seven cents lower than last week. And uranium takes a break at $69 per pound. That is $3.75 lower than last week. So back below $70 for uranium. The relentless climb takes a breather at last. And zinc finally is at $1.11 per pound. That is three cents lower than last week's. Zooming out, precious metals recover, whereas industrial metals really edge lower. We haven't seen $3.57 copper for quite a while here. So that is quite significant. We haven't seen a copper price this low in a very long time, in several months here. I am looking back here. It looks like close to six months since we've seen a $3, at least on our informal weekly notation here. $3.57. And I mean, nickel, we keep seeing fall lower. Again, lead at 94 cents. You know, industrial metals, other than zinc and tin, are kind of coming off a little bit. You know, so again, Dr. Copper is maybe signaling something about the global economy here with lower prices. And those are your metal prices. Coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome for the first time to the Northern Miner podcast, Myra Lugo who discusses the importance of real-world face-to-face conferences in the post-COVID world. I can speak from having witnessed it myself just in the last few days there in London. There is nothing like the connection that you get with people in the quote-unquote real world. So Northern Minor Events producer Myra Lugo and the resilience of real-world events, particularly mining events, on this week's Northern Minor podcast. I hope you enjoy it. And I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I'm very pleased to welcome Myra Lugo, events producer for the Northern Miner. Myra, welcome to the show. And it's great to talk to you here at the Canadian Mining Symposium in London. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm very excited to have you here. It's been a great event here the last couple of days. There's been a whole host of very prominent speakers in the mining world. So tell us, you know, for those that maybe have never been to a Northern Miner event, what is it uh, that you're trying to do here with this event, the Canadian Mining Symposium here in London? So the purpose of the event is to connect, as any other event, is to connect people, right? 
We're trying to connect people, but the right audience. We put a lot of work into getting the right, as we say, butts and seats and making sure that what we present to them is relevant. So this one in particular is for our junior minors, making sure they are in front of investors that are interested in that particular audience. Okay, excellent. And so could you tell us some of the main speakers? And it seems to be a mix of like very prominent uh, individuals, you know, what we might loosely call kind of elder statesmen of the scene with also exploration companies. Could you speak a little bit just about who is talking at the event? Sure. I think what's cool about the Northern Miner brand and, and, and events in particular is because of its history, it brings a lot of different people, you know, to, to the event. You have junior minor speakers, you have people like David Garofalo, who's going to be uh, sharing some of his thoughts and, and trends and experiences with us. Same with Frank Justra and uh, Robert Friedland's going to be presenting as well shortly. So the roster of speakers is phenomenal. And we also have some really cool thought leadership panels similar to our roster of speakers, of very experienced stakeholders. And, you know, sharing trends, what's happening in the industry, what's going to happen, you know, what's going to happen with ESG, which is a huge conversation to have right now, especially with investors in the room. So that's some of the people that we have here at the top of my mind. We have excellent junior miners as well that have huge potential for investment. So it's kind of like the perfect combination. As I've heard uh, a couple of times here, it's the, it's the secret sauce for, for success. Okay, excellent. And so is the idea, in a sense, one of the ways of looking at this is, you know, if you're an exploration company, maybe this is a way for you to link up and find people that might be interested in your story. And is that what London brings to this? Talk to us a little bit about the investment side of things. And what is the opportunity, in a sense, for an explorer that maybe uh, joins this conference? FaceTime. FaceTime is key, right? You know, we live in a world where there's, where's AI is taking over and there's social platforms available, which is fantastic. But at the same time, there's nothing worse than having so much data and not knowing what to do with it. So it's a very competitive market. There's lots of them out there. And like I mentioned at, at the beginning, it's, it's putting them in front of these investors that are looking for these junior miners, right? One-to-one meetings. There's many mining conferences. They're large-scale conferences. For us, it's not about the quantity of, of attendees and, and it's the quality of the attendees. So we put a lot of work into making sure these junior miners are in front of the proper investors um, to set them up for success. So is this your first event that you've done with the uh, with the Northern Miner? Uh, no, it's actually the second one. We did one in May at the TMX, which was which was great. Again, we managed to get some pretty good names there and uh, we'll continue to do so. But what's coming is exciting. So hopefully more to come and, and more of you guys to support us with the events. Sure. And in a sense, if you could just contrast a little bit, basically, you know, the event in Toronto with the event in London, in a sense, how are those events different in your view? This one is bigger. It's, it's double the amount of junior miners that we have, double the amount of investors that we have as well. We also planned for providing a platform to help them execute these one-on-one -on -one meetings. And we have a jam-packed agenda for both days. So we've had 13 junior miners presenting. We've had two, three panels per day. This is every day. Four keynote speakers every day. So it's, it's content-wise, it's, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty complete. 
Indeed. Then looking ahead, I guess, is there anything you can tell us about maybe what you guys have planned? Are you generally happy, say, with how things have gone so far? It seems to be a fairly well-attended, well-organized event. Uh, do you have any thoughts on how the event has been going? Yes, I'd like to walk around and, and, and eavesdrop and, and try to hear feedback from, from attendees. And I've had people say, this is exactly what I was looking for. I wasn't sure if I wanted to invest in this, but... This is a, a, a you know a summary and, and a simple way to know that yes, in fact, this is the industry that I want to move forward with. I've had comments from junior miners as well saying that uh, they they met with the people that they had to meet. But for me, it's really um, and again, you can't you can't see this with a virtual event. Maya D'Angelo comes to mind when it, when she says people don't remember what you did or what you said. It's how you made them feel. So the only way that you truly have a connection of trust is is when you're in front of a person. So there's that human contact, there's a handshake, there's that, you know, I'm looking at you in the eye, and that's that element that I think is, is we're accomplishing today. Interesting. So it's almost like there's an irreducibility to a certain degree of that human experience, that human face-to-face, -face, as you say, uh, that you're basically saying that Zoom can't provide, that there is a need ultimately for these kinds of conferences. Absolutely. And I think it's going to come back. I think we're uh, human beings, we're, we're animals and, and social animals, and, and we do tend to go to that, right? You follow your instincts, and that can only happen in person. So for sure, uh, not saying that hybrid is a must. So and we will have some of these sessions available online for people to um, appreciate and, and be able to see. But it's not one or the other. It has to be both. And of course, this is all post COVID. So people are excited to, to meet in person and, and, and network. I noticed it's not all companies here. Actually, I did the Quebec panel earlier today. So it also includes government here. I mean, we had Anna Gabriela Suarez with her children's book. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, I guess, are you trying to bring in, I guess, the culture of mining to a certain degree or, you know, go beyond the companies here? What's going on here? beyond. I think it's also, uh, you know, diversifying the, the industry, like the sub-industry, right? And let's not forget, it's the Canadian Mining Symposium. So all of these are attached to Canada. We're trying to promote Canada as the place uh, for, for this industry to continue to grow. And so, yeah, having, uh, for example, Anna's book is, is beautiful. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it. It's helping the industry identify or helping children identify the potential of the industry, especially with the misconception that there is that, you know, sometimes the industry is not good for the environment. Um, well, you know, if you like your phone, you have to go with it. But it's also important to present it in an early age. So that book is beautiful. Um, we have some other companies that are like executive search companies that are only focused and promoting their candidates in the mining industry as well. I think these, without a doubt, are these events are growing and we are expanding the portfolio of organizations that, that can and, and will, without a doubt, be part of it. Okay, excellent. And just as kind of a final sort of area I want to discuss here, could you tell us a little bit about the audience? Like, you know, is this an international audience? Is it mostly a London audience or these Canadians, you know, transplanted into London? Can you tell us a little bit just about who is here uh, mm -hmm. attending? We have private investors from London that are here. We have big bank names that are also here looking to invest and everyone that flew from Canada to listen as well to this speaker roster, right, which is which is so unique. So we have a little bit of everything, but mostly from London, which also makes it unique 
versus hosting it in Canada. Yeah, absolutely. And so just as we're wrapping up here then, uh, what are your sort of big picture final thoughts on the conference as you kind of take a step back? Do you have any just sort of big picture thoughts on what has taken place here in the last couple of days? You know, maybe things that maybe you, directions you want to go in the future. Wrap it up for us here, Myra. You know, what are your big picture thoughts as you think of the conference and look ahead? Having produced events in different industries, I have to say that a particular thing about the mining industry is that, you know, people are brilliant, they're fun, they like to network afterwards. I also think they're very open to new ideas. It's, it's time for change. It's it's time to change the model and the layout of the event. And, and I think the Northern Miner might just be, you know, the organization to go with it. Some different types of approach when it comes to one-to-one -one meetings, to presentations, to, you know, let us know as well uh, what you'd like to hear being miners and, and being investors you know, we're here to make these events for you. So we can only know so much about the audience. We need you to tell us as well um, what you'd like to see uh, and what you'd like to see in the future from us. Okay, excellent. And if people do want to reach out to you, should they just go by email? Or? Sure, they can do email. They can do events at northernminer.com and that goes directly to the team. And we promise we will reach out. We will respond to each one of you. Myra Lugo, event producer at the Northern Miner. Thank you for joining us here in London on the Northern Miner podcast. Big shout out and thank you once again to Myra Lugo for giving us a nice overview on what took place at the Canadian Mining Symposium and the significance of the entire event. Also, big thank you to Nicholas Kakos of Argentina Lithium and Energy for sponsoring this week's episode. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us once again on the Northern Miner Podcast. If you want to help out the show, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.